It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's podcast, we play the Generation Game. Loads of talk recently about how the Tories are really losing votes amongst young people. And they've got to come up with some policies for the millennials and the TikTokers. The truth is, they're losing votes across the board and they've lost a bigger chunk of the older voters who are normally their bedrock. So we're going to try and work out what they need to do. Or are they basically just 13 years in power? That's what happens. Uh, That's coming up in just a moment. First though, as ever, we kick off with The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and this morning we are joined as ever on a Thursday morning by James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. And uh, no Indian art this morning because she's travelling. Oh, posh. Uh, so we're joined by uh, Jenny Russell. Morning, Jenny. Well, thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be your standing. <laughs> well, I, I say I say it's posh. I think actually she's stuck on a train. Uh, and as we all know, there's nothing posh about being stuck on a train. Anyways, Jenny, it's nice, nice to have you with us. Um, I want, let's kick off with, uh, it's always interesting to wake up to some big political news. The reason we woke up to it is because it happened while we were asleep on the other side of the world. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, making this announcement. Let's take a listen. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life. But it has also had its challenges. I know what this job takes. And I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. I know there will be much discussion in the aftermath of this decision as to what the so-called real reason was. I can tell you that what I'm sharing today is it. Yes, she's quitting. She's quitting. She's going to, in fact, she's going to quit next month ahead of a general election in uh, October, which her party was widely expected to lose, judging by the polls. So, Jenny, is Jacinda Ardern the great, a great loss for, for liberals around the world who loved the, this woman who, who impressed us all during the pandemic and everyone uh, thought this was a great model of, uh, of uh, the model politician? Or is she just quitting because she knew she was going to lose? I don't think it's either of those things. I, I, I think. She, I, 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 sorry about that. I, th- I, th- I think many of her policies were very admirable, but I think what's most interesting about her going is the honesty of saying that this job requires something which I no longer have the energy for, and I think that's something that will resonate with a great many people. That actually jobs that are extremely tough and demanding, there comes a point when you just know within yourself that you haven't got what it takes to do them, and a lot of. A lot of people aren't prepared to recognise that when it happens, and they struggle on. I think Vincent Gordon Brown, 
in 2010. And Gordon Brown didn't have what it took to be prime minister. He'd always wanted to be one. And when it got there, he actually didn't really have any ideas. And he didn't have the energy and he didn't have the decision-making capability. And it would have been a great boon to the country if actually after six months it said, come to think of it, I don't have what it takes to do this. And I think it's admirable that she's given the job everything that she has for the past five years. And now that she she knows it's time for somebody else. It's interesting you make that point about uh, going on and on and on. Um, James, we spoke to um, Ken Clark on the show last week and he said that he thought that 10 years was a pretty solid solid length of time for a political party, never mind an individual. You know, Margaret Thatcher um, uh, did 10 years and it all went a bit wobbly. John Major managed to keep the show on the road. Again, Tony Blair, uh, uh, 10 years. Gordon Brown struggled after that. I mean, you know, going on for 10 yeah. weeks is seen as an achievement these days by one of our prime ministers. But maybe there's something about being self-aware enough to know exactly you've done enough. is quite a, an appealing an appealing thing in a politician. I think why the Jacinda Ardern news is so interesting is because I think this is a part of the psychology of politicians. There's always most inexplicable, most inexplicable to people who aren't politicians, which is, as you say, we can all see that, you know, 10 years is probably about the limit of, you know, a prime ministerial term, a government. We know that things get seem to get corrupt and chaotic after that. We can all see that. And we just, why is it so common that politicians are just determined to stick on and on and on beyond the bitter end and they have to be hauled out of office when we can all see you know your career would look much better if you'd quit with dignity um you know you, you've been prime minister what more do you want you've made it it's congratulations why do you have to keep being prime minister and i think this is the thing that is fascinating you know i think that's the thing about the mindset of politicians that is probably most hard for ordinary people to understand i'm not sure i understand it why you have to keep on and on and on and on clinging to power when you've made your reputation you've made your name you know, go and retire and make tons of money. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is ultimately what our politicians need to be much better at doing. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe not, and, not and, yet. And, maybe, maybe I'll take that last bit back. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think there's a distinction to be made between politicians who decide to stay on because they think that they have a sense of service and they still have something to offer. I'd put Ed Miliband in that category, who's performing a much more useful role as Environment Secretary than he did as uh, Shadow Environment Secretary than he did as Labour leader, because he thinks he's he's got a lot of experience and he wants to go on offering what he has. I think that's admirable. But I think, for instance, people like Boris Johnson, who are only hanging on because although he made a catastrophic failure of being Prime Minister, he's so desperately hungry for the power and status of the Prime Ministership that he's hanging on not in order to offer anything useful, but just out of um, the sheer egotistical fantasy that he will be recalled by his country again. Uh, there is also, I suppose, that the, the reason that, I mean, we don't normally take a huge amount of interest in, in who's running the country on the other side of the world. Um, but, uh, I mean, Jacinda Ardern became a sort of poster girl during, during the pandemic uh, for uh, being very tough on COVID. And every time... You know, Boris Johnson delayed having a lockdown. New Zealand seemed to crank up its restrictions. Um, but actually, you know, while it was popular at the time, their economy took a massive uh, hit. And and actually, you know, people, as a result, her her um, her popularity took a hit as well. But actually, now the economy, I think, is 
is bouncing back. Last year, it jumped by 2% in, in three months, but she doesn't necessarily seem to be enjoying the benefit of that. But she does say that all, all she makes the point that politicians are human. Sometimes we're not very good at remembering that, that we're in danger, Jenny, of seeing them as purely goodies and baddies. Boris Johnson was a baddie, some people said. Jacinda Ardern was the goodie. And we sort of forget about that. We don't necessarily scrutinise the polls and the economic figures in in uh, in New Zealand. We just remember that she was one of the good ones. No, I can't say I'm taking that simplistic view either. I'm not. I'm not saying Boris Johnson is a baddie because of any um, any particular animus towards him as a character. It's based on the evidence of why he took power and how he behaved once he was there. Most of his decisions were extremely poor. Um, I don't think it was right for New Zealand to have put in such a draconian COVID policy either, as it turned out. However, was she earnestly trying to do her best? Yes. Yes, and I suppose that's that's the thing. And, and actually, her honesty in the, in the, the statement uh, today or overnight is probably another reflection of that, that um, instead of pretending that everything is absolutely fine and great to go on and on and on. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's something that other politicians could take a, a leaf out of her book. Uh, James, let's I, move on and talk about Peter yeah. Express. <laughs> um, tell us about your column today. Yeah, so I was being I was being probably a little bit of a troll um, this week in the newspaper, and I was attacking pretentious food. Um, I was attacking people applying you know ludicrous adjectives to food. People sighing over flans and puddings as if they're you know works of art, not just stuff to eat. It was about my hatred of pretentious restaurants and how I've never got along with it, how I think all wine probably tastes pretty much the same. Uh, and I was sort of, yeah, I, I know that I think you're a fan of a nice restaurant, aren't you? So I was looking forward to to having a fight with you this morning. Well, what I will say is I think the fetish, fetishization of Pizza Express by people who've got <laughs> money and don't have children is a nonsense I like Pizza Express because people who take their, you know, because we take our children there, when particularly when they were younger, because they liked the pizza and the pasta, and we could have a drink. And it was sort of, it, if you really squinted, it looked like it was a proper restaurant and not like a fast food place. But you don't go there, couples, you don't go there as a couple, unless you unless you haven't got any money. It was very reasonably priced, I suppose. But um, you know there are other nicer places to go, and I don't. I think it's. I think it's um, inverted snobbery to go on about our marvelous Pizza Expresses. Whereas I think there are lots of perfectly nice restaurants which aren't snobby and pretentious, but do serve nicer, nicer food. And uh, it, this is just a, a, a desperate attempt by you to get me to take you to a nice, unpretentious <laughs> restaurant which doesn't give you uh, a, a, a tin of crayons. Uh, when you get in there, because they uh, misjudge your age. That's that's my. That's my <laughs> oh my god! Well, I mean, I regret writing it now. You've taken, you've completely seen through me and taken me apart. I'm going to ret I'm, ret I'm retreating in disarray. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should but say no, that it's you're... not that I dislike nice restaurants. It's that I think there's a lot of there can be a lot of flummery and nonsense and pretension around them that I always find pretty. Um, pretty distressing uh, i think especially from some of my friends who are now you know they've now got you know i guess you my friends from university have gone on to become lawyers and earn lots of money and suddenly you know they have opinions about food and wine that just strike me as slightly ludicrous maybe this is envy um and i'm just like come on it's just food we have to talk about 
oh the subtlety of the flavors i don't know i'm probably philistine i, I feel like you've i feel like you've taken me apart here <laughs> well you know what I, no, but I agree i think the best restaurants are the ones that do amazing food but make you feel relaxed what you don't want is like all that sort of why well, a couple of years ago we went and did a, one of those sort of i don't know 25 tasting 25 course tasting menu things and it, the restaurant was just a bit the restaurant had carpet which i think is an absolute no in a restaurant oh yeah um that that's just a sign of it they think it's still the 1970s the restaurant had carpet and sort of starched white tablecloths and everyone called the waiters wore waistcoats and called me sir and all that sort of nonsense and i can't be doing with that but i'd like it if it if it's you know someone's gone to a lot of chop and they've made something you want to make at home one of the best meals i've had recently was last year for my birthday we went to a restaurant in at my favorite place lime regis and one of the courses was just a deep fried uh, nettle leaf with some pickles what? or something or other on the top but it was delicious i've heard you talk about this i've heard you talk about this nettle leaf before you've mentioned it before and i was very suspicious <laughs> I, I, I don't actually believe, on, James, that your friends say anything other about restaurants other than this is delicious. I don't think exactly. I've ever heard anybody discuss any the, the food beyond that. But it's worth seeking out the the restaurants that 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 are delicious. And I think one of the things that maybe um, you you aren't so conscious of because you because you're so young is that I'm old enough to remember in my childhood when restaurants served absolutely abysmal food. Um, presented as if it were school dinners. And there's been such a shift in the culture over the past 30 years. So that this focus on should food be worth eating has actually made a dramatic difference to the quality of what people eat <laughs> when, when they go out. You, know, even you just go to your little lo local neighbourhood restaurant, it looks pretty and they've made an effort. Yes, that's a very good point. Yeah, maybe the thing we've established here, James, it's not the restaurants that's the problem, it's your friends. <laughs> and uh, you just need to get some new friends. That seems. Uh, uh, um, somebody... I, think, I, think James, I think James has picked up on, on a wider cultural point that is certainly true that um, the culture isn't really very interested in high art any longer. Every time I go to a classical music concert or opera, I'm absolutely struck, as James is, by the fact there's just a sea of grey hair. That's a very good point. That, that was your jump off point, James. That instead of yes. instead of indulging high art and culture, we now certain people your friends indulge uh food elitism which is a load of nonsense yeah i mean i guess this was kind of this was the main point of the column which was that i yeah, think it's yeah. interesting that i think cultures generally got less pretentious and people are very anxious not to you know people are very anxious about snobbery about opera and stuff like that but the one thing and you know uh people you know sort of but the one thing that's got more pretentious is food. Everything else has got less pretentious, but food has got more pretentious, in my opinion. And I thought that was a kind of curious little cultural quirk that, it is, you know, it I'm is, not still totally destroyed. sure I understand. <laughs> uh, Janie and uh, James, have either of you ever had a bike stolen? Oh, yes. I've never had a bike. Oh, sorry. Oh, go on there. We'll go with Jenny because James is about to say, Jenny, you have. No, I, gave, I gave up owning bikes um, about 10 years ago when I had four stolen within eight months. And... That's why I'm so thrilled that we now have all these bike rental schemes in London where you can just hop on a line bike or a Santander bike. It was just so depressing and the police never did anything. Uh, uh, what about you, James? You haven't. I haven't. I did have a, a phone stolen a couple of years ago. Um, right out right out my hand, a guy just cycled past and plucked, plucked my phone out my hand. He did it so gently that I inadvertently said thank you. Um, <laughs> And then he just cycled most, off into the distance. Most James Marriott thing ever. What maybe? <laughs> he, maybe, maybe, maybe the thief. Maybe the thief was on Tom Whipple's bike. 
Because Tom Whipple, <laughs> you'll all know his site's editor of the Times, has now had his 12th bike stolen. Tom, what's going on? If you've not thought about buying a lock, how are you on your 12th bike? Um, well, he's out, over the course of 25 years, I should say. But as Jenny says, it's just a thoroughly, the, the depressing inevitability of it. Um, so my latest one, I, I came back to the station and someone had turned out, I got a very good lock. This time I thought, right, I'm spending, you know, 120 quid on the lock. Um, I came back and someone had turned up at the station with an angle grinder and taken a job lot of bikes. Um, wow. And this is, I think I lost my first one when I was 16. I lost. Uh, my first one was stolen when I was 16. I've, I've had bangers. I have had expensive bikes. I've had expensive locks. I've left them in. One of them went from the, 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 the middle of a gated community, locked up in the bike sheds. Um, I've had, uh, you know, all man, I, I've never had them really investigated. I've had them stolen from in front of CCTV cameras that the police refused to look at. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, there's all manner of reasons for this. Um, <laughs> I, I've had one, a, a notable one was stolen. This is when, when Gumtree was really getting big and the police told me to look on Gumtree. I went on Gumtree. I didn't find my bike. I found a guy who was selling uh, dozens of bikes every week, and all of them in his caption came from his recently dead uncle. Um, and so I decided that I was so furious, I decided to pretend to buy a bike off this guy, and I said I would meet him in the Aldi, and he came to the Aldi with my bike, and then I said, oh, sorry, I've had to go to the Tesco's. Uh, and then he went to the Tesco's, and I said, oh, I meant the Lidl. And I got him cycling all around South London, which was very satisfying. <laughs> Then, then it said you, you, you've stolen bikes, haven't you? Um, but, it, you know, well, there it, we are. it's absolutely infuriating. Jenny Russell and James Barrett then. Of course, you can read the columnist of The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times box. Up next, it's a generation game. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, it's time for this. The Big Thing. On Times Radio. Nice to see the polls, to see the polls. Nice. Life is the name of the game, and I want to play the game with you. Yes, we're playing the generation game this morning. We've got some exclusive polling, which looks at how people are going to vote broken down by age. It reveals that, yes, the Tories are shedding votes amongst the young generation, but they're actually down even more among their bedrock older supporters. So in this half hour, we're going to crunch the numbers and uh, pick the brains of a geriatric millennial Tory council leader, or a young person, uh, as uh, politicians uh, might call them, and a senior Tory here. Uh, so to get their sense of where Rishi Sunak and the Tory party should be directing their efforts, should they be going after the young or trying to shore up their older voters. First though, to crunch through the numbers for us, Patrick English from YouGov explains just how poll, how tricky uh, trying to go after young people will be for the Conservatives. Yes, yeah, so this is a very interesting poll that we've been conducting in, in January looking at course, where the Conservatives and where Labour are with different age groups in the UK. We know that different age groups tend to turn out and vote in different numbers. Younger people don't vote as much as older people. And what we found is that the Conservatives, although of course they do have a youth problem, 
they've actually been losing most of their support among the older age brackets, and particularly the 50 to 59 year olds. So we're seeing 27, minus 27 that are down there. So if we're looking ahead then to the next election, these groups are turning out probably the most. They tend to be where the Conservatives would like to think their base is, but they do seem to be deserting them. So that's where they're struggling most. And Labour are up sort of everywhere. They already had quite a high base with young people, so not too much movement there. But if as we start to look through those 30 to 39, up towards the 50, 59 brackets, Labour is doing their best work there. So we're kind of seeing a, a breaking down of those traditional age brackets and a bit more of a dispersion, particularly of older voters, from the Conservatives to the Labour Party. And you're right. I mean, essentially, the Conservatives didn't have masses uh, of young people uh, to start mm. with. Uh, they only had, what was it, 21% of uh, under 25s mm. voted for them in 2019. That's mm. basically halved. They've lost about 10, 11, uh, 12% uh, of, of that group. But then you yeah. jump up to, to what used to be their base. 27% of people in their 50s uh, um, used to, who used to vote for Tories have gone elsewhere. 23% uh, yeah. of people in their 60s. 19% of people in their 70s. This is their absolute bedrock, isn't it? And rather than worrying about people, you know, can we find a policy that will in, you know, win over TikTokers? They need to, they need to <laughs> cling on to their base, don't they? Yes, indeed. Well, of course, when a party is falling far, as the Conservatives are in the polling right now, they fall fastest among their largest group, among their base. So typically, we in this situation, we would see the largest numbers of voters going from their largest voter groups. It kind of makes sense mathematically. But however, I think what's really interesting is that they're not only losing older voters to the Labour Party, they're also losing them to, re to reform as well. We're seeing double-digit numbers for Reform UK in terms of voting tension among 60 to 69-year-olds and those in the 70-plus brackets. So if you're with the Conservative Party HQ and you're thinking, you know, how do we win back these the older voters that are sort of the bedrock of our, of our coalition? Well, it, it might be the fact that you have very two different offers to make to very two different types of older voters who now seem to be moving away from you. So a bit of a conundrum. And there's also been a lot of talk and analysis recently about the idea that the, the, as you get older, you become more right wing. You start mm. off as a socialist and you drift rightwards as you get older. And the, the yeah. suggestion is that that isn't happening anymore. And that if you look at America and in the UK, uh, millennials uh, who by now, you know, in the sort of 30s, tipping into 40s, should start it of sort of drifting towards uh, the parties of the right by now. And that supposedly isn't happening. Is that is that a real thing, a real concern for the Conservative Party? I think it definitely should be, yeah. So the, that analysis for, by John Byrne Murdoch looked at this and suggested that millennials in, in both the UK and the US, in fact, particularly in the UK, rather than going more to the right, they're actually going more to the left. So they're drifting further away from the Conservative Party. And typically, as you as, as you say, there's younger voters not got voting for Conservative parties with a small C across the Anglosphere and indeed in Europe hasn't always been so much of a big problem for those parties because people tend to drift more conservative as they get older. They get houses, they start families, they get better jobs. They look at their tax bill and go, my goodness, I, I, I might want to cut this down a little bit. But that doesn't seem to be happening with this generation. I think there's probably a few reasons for that, which, again, make another conundrum for the Conservative Party. One is, of course, millennials right now struggle to basically kind of get collect the assets necessary to buy houses, to start families, to have secure jobs. Those, those sorts of assets are not readily available to this generation as they were previous generations, and that's a big problem. However, I think it's also something to do with values. And there's been a lot of values sort of uh, politics 
in particularly the UK and the US over recent election cycles. We think about Brexit. We now think about arguments about the, the war on woke or culture wars. And that is incredibly alienating for what is arguably the most liberal, progressive generation that's, uh, that has been coming through. So I think there's an alienation effect, both in terms of economic assets and in terms of social values, which makes it incredibly difficult to see how the Conservatives are, are, are going to ride that round and transition or change those younger voters into thinking and voting more Conservatives, as they have traditionally done uh, in previous uh, election cycles. Uh, that was Patrick English from YouGov talking us through that polling. If you want to see lots of charts uh, laying it all out, I have got them on my uh, Twitter account. So go to twitter.com forward slash Matt Shirley. And you can see exactly where Labour are picking up and uh, the Conservatives have uh, fallen uh, back. And including, as uh, Patrick was just saying, Reform, Reform UK, obviously born out of UKIP, making big gains into people in their 50s, 60s and 70s. Lib Dems a bit all over the place, uh, if I'm honest. And uh, the Greens, the Greens seem to be picking up, particularly amongst much younger voters, uh, where uh, where the uh, the Lib Dems are dropping back a bit. So you can see all of those uh, charts online right now if you want to, to be able to visualise what it is that we're talking about. So who should the Conservatives be going after in the generation game? Let's speak to Sebastian Payne, uh, journalist, now director at the uh, Think Tank Onwards. Uh, morning, sir. Morning, Matt. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, we've also got Will Jennings, uh, who's a professor of poli political science uh, at the University of Southampton. Hi, Will. Uh, good morning, Matt. So, Seb, you think that the Conservatives can and, in fact, should be trying to wing over younger voters? That's right, because obviously today's younger voters are tomorrow's conservative base. And if you just take the view that you can ignore these people and that, you know, they will just naturally become conservatives, I don't think that's going to happen. And we've done some research at Onward that shows essentially millennial generation, that's people who came of age at around millennium, generally born in the 1980s and 1990s. They are not following that traditional trajectory of becoming more right wing as they get older. And that's partly because, as Patrick was saying earlier, they aren't able to buy houses. They haven't got as many assets. There's also few of them getting married. So all those traditional routes that would make you conservative are not open in the way they used to be. So if the party just sits back and say, oh, well, they're all a bunch of young wokies who are never going to vote for us anyway, then in about 10 or 15 years' time, there's not going to be much of a conservative voting base. Now, the Conservative Party is always going to lean towards older voters. That's always been the case for quite a long period of time. But it's not always been the case that it hasn't won younger people over. I think in 1987, Margaret Thatcher's third election victory, she won more 18 to 24-year-olds than the Labour Party did. So something's definitely gone wrong there. And I've argued in the Times last week, for example, that really there's certain things you can do with regards to obviously building some more houses, trying to fix childcare, potentially taking a more common sense approach on culture war issues that can start to say to those people, look, we're not entirely against you. It's going to be a long journey to win those people back. But I don't think it's impossible to try and have both sides of the voting coalition in terms of age. And so, Will, what do you think about this? Can the Tories win back younger voters or are they just barking up the wrong tree if they start trying to do that? 
Well, I mean, I think I'd, I'd kind of focus on two main points. I mean, I think Sebastian's policy prescriptions in his Times article, I think, are all brilliant, sensible ideas on which we'd, we'd all agree. I yeah, think yeah. the re- <laughs> exactly so. Uh, Sebastian, <laughs> nice, to, nice to agree for once, but um, uh, or very often actually. Um, but I think the real challenge is that the Conservatives become a real vote-winning machine above the over fifties and especially over sixty-fives. And I think um, the idea that you can shift the balance of that electoral coalition by what are you know, very uh, sensible policies, I think, is a little optimistic. And and in some ways, I think what's really fascinating to me is that we've spent a lot of the last six, seven years talking about the the fundamental tension in Labour's vote of its old working class um, base that favoured Brexit versus its new uh, socially liberal educated base. And actually, we're just seeing the um, the other side of exactly the same coin that the Conservatives are facing, that what they were mobilised so effectively to win uh, a huge... uh, victory in 2019 is coming back back to bite them and you know i think um making um sensible policy policy offerings um uh, is not going to shift the real gravity uh, among those you know i think probably you'd focus on, on under 50s uh, as, a, as a as a group and so as patrick identified values are incredibly important i think um i i for one would be delighted to spend lots of less less time talking about culture wars but actually i think it's so enmeshed in um you know large significant parts of the concern parties uh, modern agenda that I, I think it's going to be a huge challenge for them to square the square, square the circle but I think the main reflection I have a little bit thinking on um, uh, uh, Sebastian talking about 1987 is you know sometimes these these fault lines just become um, more apparent when a party's doing well or badly so 1987 you know age was an issue for the conservatives because they were just you know giving labor an absolute hammering and now that the shoe is not on the other foot and, and that that weakness that the conservatives had a, among younger voters which didn't matter at all in 2019, really is hurting them. And so I think you know it's we're back we're back to the same same realignment problem that we that Labour faced now for the Conservatives. Uh, so, but is is part of the problem that actually, if you look at not just the 2019 election, but you go back further, the Conservatives is down massively across the board amongst everyone. Mm. And part of that is because they've been in power for a long time. And they've made a hash, essentially, of the last 12 months, changing leader, crashing the economy, um, you know, the cost of living. Some some things are in their grasp and some aren't. And that actually, you can parcel all these things up sometimes and say, well, we need a policy for a young person. We need a policy for an old person. And actually, by and large, if you've just got popular policies, you know, um, a rising tide lifts all ships or whatever it might be. Um, and that actually, yes, young people want to get on the housing ladder, so a policy for them might work, but that would actually prove popular with their parents and grandparents who wanted to get them to move out of the house. Um, and so actually, are we are we even wrong to talk about parceling up these policies for particular groups that actually you just need widespread appeal for being competent and having ideas for the future? I remember talking to a Conservative Party strategist about this and we were talking about, you know, the red wall versus the blue wall, the young versus the old. And this person just said to me, you're ridiculous. The fact is voters are voters and seats are seats. And I think the argument they were trying to get to with that is that, as you said, Matt, if the if the Tory party is doing well generally, it's winning across the country because that's obviously in 2019 it had a coalition that stretched the whole breadth of the country. And if you look at the average age of the Conservative voter... It dropped massively from the 2017 election when I think it was about 47 into the 2019 election because obviously it was winning more votes. You're winning votes 
from across the voting spectrum. I mean, Rishi Sunak's strategy throughout all this is to try and do what you've just said, because he himself is, as I would describe, a geriatric millennial. He was born in 1980. He's our first millennial prime minister. And I actually think it was Robert Buckland, when he was local government secretary, was the first millennial cabinet minister. And I think, you know, people might look at them and say, well, they don't feel very millennial to me in terms of their aesthetic. They look and sound just like classic Tories and they're going to win over classic Tories in terms of their votes and how they do things. So I think there is an element of that, but there's no doubt, as Will and Patrick have talked about, there is a specific issue you need to think about. And the Conservative Party keeps winning elections because it keeps renewing itself. And the last 12 months, the party's been almost entirely inwardly focused. There's a lot of discussion today about levelling up and the levelling up funding. But the fact is, you know, this government's not done much on that because it's just been very introspective. So what we're trying to see from the government is this barnacles off the bow strategy, trying to yeah, get yeah. rid of things that are problematic. And I think that does include some of the more contentious cultural issues because they do know that this is as specific problems. They've got to fix young people, old people, red wall, blue wall, pretty much everything, really. Uh, Will, is it actually true that the Conservative Party win because they keep reinventing themselves until they don't? Uh, and actually... You, you know they 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 did it under uh, in the eighties and nineties. They renewed themselves under Margaret Thatcher. Then they got rid of her, John Major. But then after ninety seven, they spent what thirteen years out of power because they you know, people got fed up with them. And then is it just the case that actually once the tide turns, the 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 country decides right, we've had enough. I've, you know, all the coming. It's just been a very long time. We're bored of you. We're fed up with you. You've got too much baggage. That that overwhelmingly, the biggest problem the Conservatives are going to have at the next election in 2024, 2025, is going to be they've been in power for 14, 15 years, isn't it? Yeah, and, and there's a great quote from Jim Callaghan about in, in his diaries in the lead up to the 1979 election saying, you know, there's a, you know, he felt a sea change out in the country and that 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 tide was going for Mrs. Thatcher. And I think that is that 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 sort of in political scientists call it the cost of governing, that there's just a steady accumulation of exhaustion, that negativity builds up over a long time and, and voters do eventually um, you know, get sick of governments, you know, even ones that have successfully renewed themselves. And I think back in 2019. 2020, we were talking a lot about actually the Conservatives had managed to tell a story about themselves that felt like they were a new government again. They kept changing prime minister where they could pretend that they hadn't, uh, or the, the cabinet hadn't had anything to do with the, the, the decisions of the previous cabinet. And But I think the, the real challenge for commentators and uh, people like uh, Sebastian and myself is actually um, not, not being like economists and predicting 25 out of the last 10 recessions and saying, you know, this now, this is it. This is now the sea change. And I think it feels like there might be a sea change. Now, the current the recent crises we've had around the economy, the events in the NHS do feel like the public has shifted. The polls have remained pretty stubbornly with a Labour lead. Um, but anyone who's lived through the last 15 years of, of British politics learns that one shouldn't get overconfident about predicting um, sea changes. And I think that's the real challenge, actually. We won't, won't know until the exit poll drops uh, uh, you know, on the night of the next general election whether or not that has really happened. And, and if you remember the run-up to 1997, there was a lot of scepticism both both on the right and the left about whether Labour were going to win and, and they you know turned out with a huge majority and so I think um, we will all be spending the next year year and a half wondering whether whether this sea change really is going to come to fruition and the voters are really going to turn up at the ballot box enough of you you know uh, I may not yeah. even think very much of the new the new the new the new the other party but it's time for a change 
Yeah, it's interesting. You you, know, you never know that the tide's going out until quite a long time after it's turned. That's the big. Uh, that's the, just to extend the metaphor even further. Uh, Will, really good to speak to you there. Will Will Jennings uh, from uh, the University of Southampton and Sebastian Payne uh, from the think tank onwards. As new polling uh, analysis for this program by YouGov reveals that yes, the Conservatives do have a problem with young people. They're down twelve points. Uh, compared to the 2019 election with the under-25s, 15 points with those uh, between 25 and 29. But amongst their base, down 27 points amongst people in their 50s, 23 points in their 60s and 19 points in their 70s. Labour were up right across the board, uh, up 19, 18 points amongst people in their 30s, 40s and 50s. Uh, so, uh, what can the Conservatives do about it? Should they be doing something about it? So, in the spirit of the Generation Game, we've got a young Conservative and a slightly slightly older Conservative. We are joined by Olivia Lyons, Conservative leader of Cannock Chase Council. Morning, Olivia. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, Olivia, you're, you're described as a geriatric millennial, which makes you sound much older than you actually are. <laughs> I thought that was quite interesting, actually, when, when that was the, the description used. So you're thirty. That's the that's the um, that, that's the that's the just to put a number on it. Yeah, and, absolutely. And as a result, one of the youngest council leaders in the country, and Ros Altman, Conservative peer, former pensions minister, joins us. Morning, Ros. Morning, Matt. It's very. It's it's it would be rude of me to ask you how old you are. As public record, I'm sixty six, so I'm just yeah, started taking a pension. Just started taking a pension. So. Um, uh, Olivia, we'll start with you first of all. Does it matter uh, if the Conservatives are losing younger voters at this stage? Are you is, is that where is that should Rishi Sunak expend a lot of effort on trying to win back the people in their twenties and thirties? Um, I think it's a really interesting one. I was actually listening in to the conversation before joining um, this morning. Um, I think. Policies, obviously, you've got policies that appeal to various different generations. And I think broadly, um, and it was mentioned earlier, there are policies that, that appeal to all generations. So, for example, naturally, um, from a, a younger sort of perspective, um, we'd be looking at home building in terms of tackling the, house, the housing crisis. And that's something certainly as a local council we are looking at. Um, you then look at, obviously, the wider economy, support for local businesses. Um, and I think actually those policies appeal to younger generations. They appeal to first-time buyers. They appeal to families, young families. They appeal to people starting out in business, perhaps. Um, but doing so, they actually do appeal to the older generations. So I think it is those broad policies, and I think it's just tailoring them at a very local level, which is something we're certainly doing as a council um, to ensure, obviously, continually listening to the residents we serve and making sure that we, um, you know, get it right, get it right for all generations, not any particular one. Uh, and was the other end of the scale, I suspect, given particularly because as a pensions minister, people might think, well, that's that's for, for older people. Well, actually, a lot of what you were doing when you were pensions minister uh, for David Cameron and then uh, um, uh, uh, was, was to sort of come up with policies but to get younger people to save. Yeah. And so lots of just do the right thing for the country, explain it properly, and people will come with you, perhaps, rather than sort of slicing and dicing the electorate all the time. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm very much in the camp of, of somebody who says that we shouldn't have this intergenerational divide. This is a country, we are a nation. If young people are doing well, older people will be doing 
well. If older people are doing well, that helps younger people too. You know, we, we all uh, are, if you like, in it together. So for government to single out a particular group and say, oh, we're going to favour them, I, I, because of their age. I mean, obviously, if people are, are disadvantaged, if people have particular needs that society should be aware of and taking care of, that's part of being society, but that's um, regardless of age. You know, there shouldn't be this uh, element that says, oh, um, particular policies and governments should be favoured by or looking to be favoured by a particular age group within a country. And as I, I introduced you as a Conservative uh, uh peer um Roz, but you've been i think you were a liberal democrat you were you were in the labor party before you became so you're sort of floating a floating well, peer or, or you have been no uh, as it happens i belonged to all the major parties because i was an independent policy advisor and i felt it would be good to see what each party was saying within itself uh, about the various policies that I'm particularly interested in. Oh, okay. I've only Lovely. been a politician as, as such officially uh, in any way since 2015. Prior to that, I was, uh, you know, a supporter of whichever party I believed had the best policies. And I'm much more of a, a sort of centrist, centre-ground, social democracy, equality person than uh, a kind of tribalist, political person. I, I, I don't like the, the tribal nature of politics. And indeed, yeah. in the House of Lords, it's much better in, in terms of being able to work across party. It's certainly much politer, uh, much politer. Will the Conservatives get your vote at the next election, though? Well, oh, you don't uh, get I a don't vote, do you? Because you're have a vote. But um, would they? Would they? I think we have to see what the policies are. Uh, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to argue that any one party has a monopoly on the best ideas, but depending on what are the best ideas at the time, what the country needs at the time, you know, I would very much have liked to see a government of national unity where you get the best people from all sides. You know, there are good good people and policies. You know, I know this sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish, but truly I think our country has become worryingly divided whether it's via politics or via ageism or via uh, other dividers, I think we need urgently to have more cohesion within our country rather yeah. than pitting groups against each other. And actually, I think the Times does a good job in trying to do that. Oh, well, that's very nice. That's very nice. Well, I'm glad we've got that full spectrum. I think we're sort of worrying consensus breaking out across the generations. Uh, yeah. One last thing we want to do, it's just a bit of fun before we let you go, because we're doing the generation game. And also the generation game, they play the conveyor belt game where uh, they the, the contestants have to try and remember uh, things. So what we thought we'd do was to test big launch from Rishi Sunak at the beginning of the year, his five priorities for the year. Uh, so what we thought we'd do um, is see if you could remember Rishi Sunak's five priorities for the year, which is going to turn things around for the Conservative Party. Are you, ha are you happy to play the conveyor belt game? Yes, that sounds like it. <laughs> we're talking to both of you. You can play along together. Olivia and Roz playing along together. Uh, see if you yes. can. Um, we're going to give you 30 seconds to see if you can remember all five of Rishi Sunak's uh, top priorities for the year. Because my experience has been to several Tory MPs as they can't. So let, let's start the clock. Your 30 seconds starts now. Just shout them out. 
Um, tackling inflation um, with regards to cost of living. Very good, um, that's one. Waiting lists mm-hmm. in the NHS. Um, waiting lists is good, backlog. yeah, that's one. Um, immigration, tackling the um, issue that Small we've boat. got with... Small boats, very good. Yes, that's right. Um, Two more. National debt, and making sure we're addressing national debt and reducing national debt and growing the very economy. Good. Oh, very good. Very good. One more. You to get your time's nearly up. Oh, your time's uh, up. The time's up. <laughs> the time is up. The time is up. Well but... done, Olivia. Well done, Olivia. <laughs> T- straight to I the top of the class. I don't have the best memory, so that was quite a challenge. No, that was that was impressive. Uh, getting the economy growing was one of was the one that you. I thought I said growth. I'm sorry if I. If oh I well, didn't... if you did, I got that got lost in the mix. In which case, well done. Five out of five. <laughs> Bang the gong for that. Well done. Uh, thank you very much. That that was a lot of fun. A nice way to end our slightly thank silly. You. Uh, generation again. That's Ros Altman there, uh, Conservative peer, uh, Baroness Altman, of course, and Olivia Lyons, Conservative leader of Cannock Chase Council. Uh, we also heard from Patrick English, Seb Payne and Will Jennings too. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. 